You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. University of California, Irvine, UCI Master of Science and Pharmacology faculty are among the best in the field, recognized both nationally and internationally for their scientific research and publications. A number of faculty have worked with and or founded pharmaceutical companies and hold patents relative to drug discoveries they made. The UCI two-year, 100% online degree program is designed for working professionals who are interested in advancing their careers or enhancing their competitiveness for admission to other degree programs. Fall registration is now open. Apply today at sites.uci.edu slash mspharmacology to learn more and reserve your seat by June 15th, 2020. That's sites.uci.edu slash mspharmacology and reserve your seat today. Pharmacy Podcast Nation. It's Tyler, your host, and I'm back again to serve you up another great episode. I hope everyone is doing well during these trying times and staying healthy and smart. Uh, Lately, I've been listening to a lot of episodes from the Pharmacy Podcast Network's plethora of shows, including the Lux Pharmacist show and her episodes about residency, as well as an awesome combination episode from Todd Gurry featuring Miss America 2020, Camille Schreier, and also the star of the Netflix documentary, The Pharmacist, uh, Dan Schneider. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend it. That said, let's get on with today's show. Let me introduce my guest. My co-host today is my classmate and good friend, Gisu, and I want to thank her for being willing to record with me today. I also have to thank Twitter for providing the hookup for today's episode because our star of the show is none other than Monica Mahoney. Thank you, ladies, for recording with me today. Thanks for having us. For those who uh, were anxiously waiting for the next episode since last month, um, when we got to talk to Young Hong about Layla Wellness and her um, her medical device uh, startup company, uh, that was a great episode also. And now we're going to talk with uh, Monica a little bit about her role in pharmacy, um, in infectious diseases, and other things that she does. And let's actually start off with Gisu. Gisu, nobody in the podcast world yet has has met you. Um, and I think that they definitely should get a taste of, of who you are. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit for us? So my name is Gisu, everyone. I'm a P1 student at University of Utah College. Um, yeah, and I'm really happy to be here. So, and Gisu recently uh, recently obtained the presidency of oh, yes. of an organization. Can you kind of tell us what that was? Yes, definitely. So, um, I will be the ASHB SSHB president flex this upcoming year, and um, it's basically the health system pharmacy position. We're excited for that. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations on that. And now to introduce, uh, I'm going to let her introduce herself because she um, seems like she's had an illustrious career so far. Monica, can you go ahead and tell our audience a little bit about yourself? 
Yeah, thanks. Um, Gisu, congrats on your position. I, too, ha held that position back in my day. So, I mean, you can follow my footsteps. Um, Tyler mentioned Twitter, and I just want to give a shout out that if you guys aren't on it, you should, because I joined about two or three years ago, and it has skyrocketed my career. Um, I've made so many connections. I've met so many people, and it's actually helped me in patient care as well. So I encourage you guys as students to get involved, even if you're a lurk just to start getting a feel for what social media can do for, for pharmacy and for medicine. Now to, uh, I guess, introduce myself. Um, so I'm Honey. I'm currently the clinical pharmacy specialist in infectious disease at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. And I kind of stumbled into pharmacy as a career. I transferred into pharmacy during my third year because um, the summer after second year, or sorry, summer after first year, I got a job working at a retail pharmacy. And I was like, huh, I can do this. This is pretty easy. The pharmacist just stands in front of the computer all day. <laughs> um, I got into pharmacy school and I realized, oh, no, that's not what they do. Um, but throughout pharmacy school, I worked as an intern in a retail pharmacy. And while I think retail is an important role, I knew that it wasn't for me. It wasn't in my future. So I set my sights on the residency. I thought I was going to be an ambulatory pharmacist. The VA was my future, and that was going to be my career path. But I ended up matching in an inpatient academic, inpatient academic medical center. Definitely not AM care. But people will say this over and over again, that the match works in mysterious ways and it's meant to be. So after I matched at Tufts Medical Center, I found my calling as an ID pharmacist. For about 10 years, I worked as the ID um, infectious disease clinical coordinator on the inpatient side, which consisted of rounding with the ID consult teams, precepting students and residents, rolling out hospital ID initiatives, mentoring our staff, and then also uh, taking part in our antimicrobial stewardship program. And then about a year ago, a new opportunity presented itself, still at Beth Israel. Um, and I was able to transition into working in our outpatient ID clinic. So my role is now split between serving the patients we see in clinic. Um, a lot of disease states involve HIV, hepatitis C, mycobacterial infections like TB, um, latent tuberculosis, non-tuberculosis mycobacterial infections, um, and then some general ID follow-up, and then our OPAT clinic. So OPAT stands for Outpatient Parenteral Antimicrobial Therapy. Basically, it's patients that are being discharged from the hospital to complete weeks of antibiotic therapy outside the hospital. So this uh, position now has me directly working with physicians, nurse practitioners, a lot more patient face-to-face -face interactions than I had on the inpatient side, but it's been a fantastic change. I think it goes to show how versatile pharmacists can be. And I guess I ultimately ended up meeting my goal of being an ambulatory pharmacist after all. Yeah, that sounds like it. Wow, that uh, that's a very impressive uh, lineup of, of work that you had. And it's it's very interesting how you got to that position. It sounds like you really enjoy what you do. I do. Um, and when you find something that you love doing, you want to continue doing it. When you find coworkers that are fantastic and you're excited to go, you're excited to help people. I think that's the best um, job and career outcome that you can have. Yeah, for sure. I would definitely agree. Um, I can I can probably speak for Gisu as well. Well, she might she might already have an idea of what she wants to do. Um, I think it's a little too early for myself to kind of know what route of pharmacy I'd like to go into. Gisu, do you kind of have an idea already of where you're headed? Um, I'm looking into a few things. ID is definitely one of my top ones, and so um, 
Dr. Mahoney has been great today. So ah, I love this. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, Gisu had some really good questions. Uh, she she had some questions that I didn't really think about. I when I saw the list that that we sent you, Monica, it um, hers were hers were really detailed, and I, I I almost felt a little embarrassed that I didn't ask you know kind of detailed <laughs> questions like that. Um, nonetheless, they are very good questions, especially because. Um, for any of you students out there who are listening to this, who are thinking about maybe going into ID or you know uh, any other any other route of pharmacy, um, they're very good questions, and I think they'll definitely help out uh, in your future choices of residency or fellowship or kind of whatever you want to do. Um, so, Gisu, would you like to would you like to fire away at Monica with those Absolutely. questions? Yes. Okay. So I'll I'll start off with the first one. Um, Monica, how is ID different than many other health system specialties, and what deciding factor was behind you pursuing a PGY-2 in ID? Um, yeah, great questions. I have to echo that. Um, I don't think I would have thought of these types of questions when I was still a student, so very insightful. Um, I think ID is unique in that it will touch all other specialties. When you think about it, antibiotics are used everywhere. They're also used inpatient, outpatient, general medicine, ICU, oncology, urology. We see them being used in dentistry and veterinary medicine. So because you see them everywhere, because lots of people prescribe antibiotics, I think everyone considers themselves to be an expert, even if they didn't receive specialized training in infectious disease. And I think it's okay if you don't know what you want to go into, because maybe a little known secret is I hated ID in school. I thought it was all a bunch of memorization, regurgitation, bug drug, memorize it for the test, then forget it. I'm sure this is going to resonate with a lot of you when you get to that stage in your education. But it wasn't until my ID rotation during residency where I had an amazing preceptor and things just clicked. And I think having that patient in front of me, somehow all of that abstract pairing of the bugs and drugs made sense. I also realized how few people actually understand the interplay between bacteria and drugs and dosing and mechanisms of resistance. So I realized that if I could master this one small area of medicine, this one small area of pharmacy, I could potentially help a lot of people. And then after that, that was you know done, sealed. Um, I applied, I interviewed for PGY2s and ID, and I never looked back. And it has been a fantastic fit for me. Um, and I think that's important as well, is that you need to find what you are passionate about. You need to find what speaks to you because, you know, cardiology, I don't want to go there. Don't come talk to me unless it's endocarditis. You know, that that's just not my jam. And that's fine because that's where pharmacy can play up with strengths. You pick what you are good at. You pick how you can contribute. And we have other people that can help out with the rest of the team. Sounds great. Yeah. What kind of interested me, to be honest, was this one course that we had our first semester, and it was called, I believe, pathology, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that kind of like sparked my interest in this whole ID field. And I guess I'm still looking into it, but that sounds great. It, it's funny that you said you didn't like it as much. Um, and I think of that every time I get asked to go lecture to students about ID. I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope I'm doing a good job. I hope that they're not sitting there thinking the exact same things that I was uh, thinking when I was in school. 
I, I will put in a plug. There is a book called Antibiotics Simplified that I have heard has been phenomenal in helping students learn about um, bacteria and antibiotics because it's written in, it's not written like a textbook, it's written like a layperson uh, terminology. There's illustrations, there's sarcastic little comments, which really spoke to me. Um, but it kind of reinforces what you learn in class. And some people have said that that has really helped them uh, retain some of the information that they were taught. So Antibiotics Simplified, the authors are Jason Gallagher and Conan. Um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his last name. McDougal. That's Sorry okay. That, We're, it's not a sponsored <laughs> episode, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and I think they get like pennies for royalty, so it's not like we're helping. Anybody, right, you know? right, right. Well, there you go. You hear, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Antibiotics Simplified, if you want to ace your courses. And Monica Mahoney promised an A for you. Is that right? Wasn't that what happened? Absolutely. And if you didn't get it, feel free to email me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got a pretty good hookup, Kisu. If we uh, if we ever need any any help or questions, I'm sure Monica could probably throw us a bone. <laughs> okay, so I do have more questions, Monica. So I'll go with the second one. Um, so how do you see the roles of ID pharmacists changing in the in the near future, and how might that affect the job outlook? Yeah, um, I think something fantastic that's recently happened is all the legislative requirements for antimicrobial stewardship. You know, we try not to get political, but this was actually a really good thing. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a mandate that all um, inpatient acute care hospitals and long-term um, long-term care facilities that they had antimicrobial stewardship uh programs up and running in order to get uh, Medicare reimbursement. And we all know that money talks. So as soon as there was money on the line, all these organizations started expanding or creating new roles. Um, if you look at any of the national guidelines or any of the international guidelines on, on antimicrobial stewardship, they say that the best programs are co-led by an ID physician and a pharmacist who has had training in ID, whether that's an actual ID um, pharmacist or someone who's gone through and done additional stewardship certificate that way. Um, that was a couple of years ago. Now, most recently in 2020, we have new requirements that we need to have outpatient antimicrobial stewardship. So now we have different legislative requirements for inpatient, long-term care, nursing home, outpatient, critical access hospital requirements. So I think we're definitely going to see an increased role and need for either ID trained pharmacists or pharmacists who go out and seek additional stewardship um, training to augment their their current roles. Um, so my prediction is that outpatient is going to be the next big adventure for ID pharmacists, and this includes both outpatient antimicrobial stewardship and what is near and dear to my heart, which is OPAT. Um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more literature come out about the need for the role of pharmacists in OPAT and how we can do antimicrobial stewardship in OPAT. And again, OPAT is outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy, patients going home on weeks of IV therapy um, or even oral therapy as well, and how we can follow up with them and manage them that that sounds really intimidating i'm not gonna lie um i think i don't know gisu is a lot smarter than i am anyway but it's that's like out of my scope of understanding even um one thing that i did want to ask you in terms of that though just for the people who have heard this um going around in media and things like this we've all heard stories about the super bugs you know the the bacterial infections that are uh resistant to any type of, of 
you know, antimicrobial drug or any antibiotic, things like that. Can you kind of speak to that and, and just kind of break that down a little bit more simply for us? And is that something that's that's real and it's not fake news kind of like everyone hears about <laughs> definitely not fake news and that is the pillar of antimicrobial stewardship so taking a step back antimicrobial stewardship it is making sure that we are using antibiotics appropriately that means selecting the best drug for the patient based on allergies based on drug interactions based on the bacteria that they're growing we want to make sure that it's active that it's not toxic we want to make sure that it's the most narrow spectrum of the antibiotics that we're using so that we're not breeding resistance. We want to make sure that we're using the right route. You know, do we have to give everything IV? Can it be oral? Um, how long are we treating for? More and more data and literature is coming out that the shorter durations of therapy are just as effective as some of our historic longer durations. And antimicrobial stewardship kind of takes all of this into consideration. And a big focus recently has been these superbugs, these multidrug resistant organisms, because as the name implies, they're resistant to a lot of the antibiotics that we do have. So we don't really have many options when patients get infections with these. Um, we've had to use combination drugs. We've had to use older drugs like colistin that are very toxic. So part of stewardship is preserving our future supply of antibiotics. If you think about it, bacteria are living. They don't want to die. They're going to do anything in their power to overcome the antibiotic and survive. And if you also think about it, a lot of our antibiotics are derived from living things. So organisms or plants will produce some kind of enzyme or substance that we later find out has activity to kill off bacteria or fungus so we develop it into a drug that we can give to humans well if you remember where we got it from something made it which means that something already had a mechanism to not be susceptible to it. So bacteria are smart. They're ever evolving. They're going to develop resistant to any antibiotic we, we develop. So as antimicrobial stewardship uh, pharmacists and physicians and just teams, we're trying to do everything possible to make sure that we have enough drug to treat infections, but not breed resistance as well. Awesome. Yeah, that, uh, that definitely breaks it down a lot more simply. Thank you for describing that. Um, so one thing that I've been, uh, thinking about is, um, are, are new antimicrobial drugs and antibiotics going to need to be developed or are we, are we going to just keep working with the ones that we have? And I know that you just talked about using old ones, but, um, are we going to keep using the ones that we have and just finding like workarounds to, to, as these, you know, super bugs start developing uh, more and more resistance? Are we going to need to develop new stuff? Yeah, excellent question. And that is a struggle that um, a lot of ID organizations and societies and drug companies are facing right now. Um, working with what we have and kind of slightly tweaking them, you know, those are what we call the Me Too drugs. Um, they have similar mechanisms of action, which means that bacteria have similar mechanisms of resistance. Um, a lot of the newer beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations that have come out, we've had them, you know, the core is either a cephalosporin or a carbapenem, which we've had around. Um, maybe they found a new beta-lactamase inhibitor it's a slightly different molecule. Um, we've been able to sort of expand um, our 
regimens to treat some of the more resistant organisms that five years ago we weren't able to treat. But I think in order to really have an advantage, we need to find completely new compounds that we haven't tweaked before. So that's less bacteria can potentially have resistance mechanisms that they already have. We know that eventually they're going to acquire them, but at least we'd, we'd be starting off with a, a better advantage. So that is absolutely the, the struggle. If you look to national organizations like the Infectious Disease Society of America, they had a big campaign um, called 10 by 20. So in 2010, they launched, launched a campaign that said, okay, by the year 2020, which is where we are right now, they wanted um, drug companies to have FDA approval for 10 new products. Happily, we have achieved that. I think we were maybe at 11 or 12, but it has been a huge struggle because drug companies do do not make money from antibiotics because if you think about it we want the patient on the antibiotic for the shortest amount of time possible cure their infection and then never go back in that antibiotic again so there needs to be some other incentive because it takes billions and billions of dollars to get a drug to market so we need some kind of financial incentives for these drug companies to actually explore and pursue coming up with new antibiotics. Um, so you stumbled upon a very niche, critical area of ID pharmacy. And if this strikes a nerve with you guys and you want to learn more, um, join some of these organizations. You know, they have student members that are either free or um, very, very reasonable. Society of ID Pharmacists is a great place to start. Infectious Disease Society of America is another one. Um, and you can learn more about these things. Thank you very much. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, I think that's a, that's a separate can of worms that could probably be talked about for quite a while. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, thank you so much for explaining that. And it's actually really funny. Um, I don't know if Tyler, if you remember or not, but we talked about this, the same issue um, in our recitation class, I believe. Um, and it was super interesting. Actually, um, I wanted to ask you, too, so with um, with all the new antibiotics that are coming or as being um, discovered or, you know, are in the trials of getting approved, um, how, like, what is one way of um, encouraging the PNT committee to these in the formulary for those patients? Because I mean, it definitely could be helpful to some, um, but I guess yeah. the price. Yeah. Um, and I think it comes down to cost, unfortunately, because in order for new drugs to be licensed and have any kind of financial incentive, back to the companies is they're usually priced more expensive compared to the old generics that we've had um, for years. And when some of these newer drugs were first approved, I think the knee-jerk reaction was for a lot of stewardship programs and P&T committees to approve them, but also reserve them only for patients that you know have documented infections that are resistant and we have to use them. That's kind of a backwards way of thinking, though, because there's plenty of data showing that in septic patients, every hour that you delay appropriate antibiotics, it's an increased mortality of 10%. So one hour is 10%, two hours is 20% if you don't have them on the right antibiotic from the get-go. Um, even with some of the rapid diagnostics that can identify um, a bacteria and give us a, its susceptibility in a couple of hours, um, that's still you know, detrimental to the patient if you don't have them on the right antibiotic up front. It's getting more and more difficult to try to predict who's going to present with one of these multi-drug resistant infections. So probably a better way is 
if you have someone who's sick, if they're septic, if they're in the ICU, if they have maybe a risk factor that you think is associated with multidrug resistant organism, have them empirically, have them up front on one of these newer drugs that are more expensive, rapidly identify what they actually have. And if they don't have a resistant organism, de-escalate them to a narrower spectrum, a cheaper drug that's still active against their infection, because at least you have them covered up front and um, you're not playing catch up by putting them on an active antibiotic, you know, several hours or several days into their infection. Um, so it's definitely a mental switch that needs to happen. And I think there's a lot of advocacy that needs to um, happen from ID, from pharmacists, ID pharmacists, ID physicians, just to get hospitals and institutions thinking this way instead of looking at the bottom line, the bottom dollar, and being like, why is pharmacy, why are you guys spending more money by using these newer, more expensive antibiotics versus, oh, look, we have um, better mortality rates or, or we have very complicated patients, but compared to mortality rates a couple of years ago, they're, they're better. You know, we're discharging them um, from the ICU faster. We're uh, freeing up patient beds more. We can't just be focusing on, on the dollar anymore, which is probably a lot for first year <laughs> pharmacy students to uh, take in. We got a little bit of it. What do you think, Gisu? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think uh, things like this, uh, at least when I was in pharmacy school, you know, that, that wasn't really taught because we were focusing more on just the therapeutics aspect of it or the, the chemical structure aspect of it. And that this, um, this is all really important, like management skills that I don't know if pharmacy schools are doing a, a, a great job of conveying to all of their students. Yeah, I, I'd probably agree with that. I can't really speak to our program. Um, I've loved our program so far, but like you said, I, uh, I think it's, we're a little too, a little too young, we're a little too young and, and upcoming, um, to really know all the fine details. But something I have noticed is that when, when I talk to people like you, um, about, you know, issues like this and, and processes and procedures, um, when I, when I get into that realm in my, uh, didactic studies, um, I, I'm definitely able to understand it a lot better because I can think back and think, oh yeah, I, I remember we talked to Monica about this and, and she explained it really well. So, um, I think we're getting the gist of it. <laughs> Good. All right. I think I have one last question for you, Monica. Um, mm -hmm. okay. On a different how is an ID fellowship different than a residency and why would someone decide to pursue one over the other? Mm. So a caveat is that I have not completed an ID fellowship. I did uh, two years of residency, no PGY-1 and PGY-2. So I can definitely speak to experience and what a PGY-2 residency entails. And then I will hopefully be able to summarize some of my colleagues that have done fellowships. Um, so a specialized residency or a PGY-2 is similar to a PGY-1 residency, except that you spent that second year focusing on one specific um, aspect of medicine or pharmacy. Most of the time, um, that training that year is spent on the inpatient units, but usually there are some outpatient rotations as well. But, you know, you're only focusing on the, well, in my case, the infectious disease issues um, that, you would, um, that you would be exposed to. A fellowship, on the other hand, is usually one or two years. Sometimes they are longer, and it's usually focused on research. So I think the main difference is that residency is learning practical approaches to caring for patients, whereas fellowship is learning research methods and skills. 
And then further within fellowship, there's, you know, a bifurcation. Um, there could be fellowships in translational or benchwork research, and then also clinical research, so focusing on patient outcomes. In that latter one, that um, clinical fellowship can still competitively position you for clinical or hospital positions after you're done with it. Um, so without having completed a fellowship, that's usually how I think about it, is that that fellowships gives you more of those skills to do a lot more of those um, either in vitro bench work research or more of the population um, uh, population modeling simulations and, and clinical trials that way. Thank you. That explains it really well. I, I think I definitely understand it way better now. And now you have a, a good connection when you want to do a residency. Maybe hit Monica up and see what she thinks. <laughs> Maybe you can go out to the East Coast. How do you feel about the East Coast, Kisio? Oh, my gosh. I wasn't planning on it, but you never know. You never know where life is. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, so in the, the one piece of advice that regardless of what career path you are considering, be open, do not lock yourself in geographically because um, I think you need to go to where the opportunities are. I think you need to go to where you feel a connection with the mentors and the institution. And if even if you know that you are hard set on going to practice in X state or X county, it would be so good to learn how pharmacies practice in a different part of the, the country to bring back some of those skills back to wherever you end up practicing. So, I mean, don't count out the East Coast. I was going to say just because we got snow, you know, four <laughs> days ago. Are you serious? <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> um, it was like 30 degrees one day, it snowed, and the next day it was 60 degrees and all the snow melted. That's so crazy. That's, I mean, we, here in Utah, we like to say that um, our weather system is kind of bipolar uh, in, in like the, in like the, the true sense of the word, because today it's, it's nice and sunny. I'm looking out my window. Yesterday it was raining and cold. You know, we've had we've had so far into May. Sometimes it'll just snow and then go away. It's you know, mm -hmm. that's Utah. That's Utah. But, yeah. but if you can afford it, and I know everyone's situation is different. You know, you might have families or you might have financial constraints, but it's one or two years of your life. So go where you can get the best education, the best training, um, and then go back to wherever your ideal location is. That is definitely great advice, all for me, for sure, and all that mind. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, and if we are going to pick, Boston is the best city in the world, so there you go. Yeah. So, okay, I, I'm definitely not refuting that. I've actually never been to Boston. I'd love to go to Boston. <laughs> but um, before I get to my, my last question, before we just wrap up, uh, you, I want to do something funny with you. Monica, can you can you go ahead and give us just like a typical Bostonian phrase with like that, you know, just classic Bostonian accent. You mean a pock macad, however you are. There you go. Chowder, <laughs> things like that. Do you eat chowder? I, I was going to say we have lobster here too. <laughs> a nice lobster roll. <laughs> oh, man, that's um, great. And caveat, I, I grew up in Connecticut, so anyone who's actually from Southie, um, please don't listen because you're going to cringe at my attempted accent <laughs> you actually have to force yourself to do it huh it doesn't come naturally uh yeah i pronounce my r's okay gotcha well 
I, that's one of the best accents, I think. I, I really enjoy that one. I've talked to someone uh, from from like the D.C. metro area and then a couple people from from Boston. It's just I get so wrapped up in it. I'm just like, can you just keep talking? I just like to hear, <laughs> hear your voice. I will say Cranston, Rhode Island is another special accent. How's that one go? I would say it's worse than the Boston accent. Oh, wow. Can you give us an example? No. Nope. <laughs> Thank you for asking, but no. <laughs> Maybe we'll YouTube it later. Get an idea. Well, thank you so much for the, the info thus far. Uh, it's been very insightful to both me and Gisu. Um, just to wrap up, I, I've i just because of everything that's going on um, and the coronavirus is an infectious disease, can you kind of explain... Uh, if if any role at all, can you kind of explain your role in everything that's been going on thus far? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm lucky that at my institution, we have three inpatient ID pharmacists, a PGY2 resident in ID, and then myself, an outpatient. So we've got five ID pharmacists at our disposal. Um, it's been a team effort. And I will say that the um, inpatient team is definitely leading the initiatives, uh, but I've been involved in however I can. So a lot of what we've done is almost immediately when, you know, there was discussion about hydroxychloroquine or Kalitra or tocilizumab being potentially active against um, COVID-19, we immediately restricted those um, those medications made them require infectious disease or stewardship approval just so that we could help guide on how they're being used. Every day, our resident, she sends out a um, daily supply and shortage email. So previously, we were sending out what we have in terms of anti-pseudomonal um, beta-lactams and, you know, what our choice would be that day based on supplies. Uh, we already had that mechanism in place, so then we added in all of the day supply for these potential anti-COVID uh, therapies. So she breaks it down into how much drug supply do we have, how many current inpatients do we have that are receiving these therapies, and how many day supply we have on hand. Um, as an institution, we built a COVID dashboard that alerts us every time an inpatient tests positive. So this allows our inpatient ID pharmacist to review the patient potentially screen them for any clinical trials and then alert our research team that, hey, we think that this person might be a candidate. Um, that has been first and foremost our treatment uh, modality is try to get these patients enrolled in clinical trials because one, um, that's the best access to medication and two, we're going to generate information on how to treat this for future patients. Um, additionally, we've changed many of our IV antibiotics to be IV push instead of um, using an infusion pump, particularly for our non-COVID patients. We push those um, antibiotics, which means that usually it's a, a syringe and a nurse will administer it manually over two minutes or so. What that does is then it frees up our IV infusion systems. Um, for our COVID patients. So we can, um, if the patient is in the ICU, we can seal off the room. The pump is outside the room um, with tubing going into the patient so that the nurse doesn't have to put on PPE every time she needs to go in and change a, a medication. You know, she can just use the infusion pump that's outside of the patient room. Um, let's see. Uh, in addition, we've collaborated with our ICU pharmacists or critical care pharmacists um, it, for COVID patients that need antibiotics, you know, we've kind of gone maybe a little bit broader and we tried to um, purposely choose ones with longer um, uh, infusion, 
that have longer dosing intervals so that we're using key 24 as much as possible. So again, the nurse doesn't have to go in and out of that room as frequently. Um, since I'm outpatient, I've tried to focus my efforts there. So when, you know, hydroxychloroquine was going to be the, the cure for coronavirus, um, I advocated for preserving the outpatient supply for proven therapies for things like lupus and our, our room patients. You know, we've got a lot of patients around that therapy for chronic maintenance. Um, so I coordinated with our outpatient pharmacies to try to buy what they could within reason you know we don't want to cause a false shortage but we also want to maintain um, enough supplies so that our patients don't go with uh, missing doses during this whole pandemic um, additionally you know we were able to secure some hiv medications because darunavir or colitra were previously thought that maybe they would be active so we wanted to make sure that these patients didn't run out of their maintenance prescriptions um, additionally i was able to join up with some of our beth israel hospitalists and harvard medical school students and we were able to design public education materials so posters and infographics that just went over in late person's terms, how to stay safe, how to wear masks, when to wear masks, how to care for masks, um, how to wash your hands. Um, these infographics and posters have actually been shared like tens of thousands of times online and um, via um, clinicians and, and patients and family members. They're also being translated into Spanish as well, so we can have a greater audience reach. Um, I'm also in the process of returning, of sorry, <laughs> in the process of recording a YouTube literature review view on, on one particular proposed COVID therapy for the Society of Infectious Disease Pharmacists. Um, those are freely available. If you go to their website, you can access them on YouTube. They have videos on each of these different therapies. And the main audience for these aren't actually ID pharmacists, but it's more anyone who's interested, um, maybe a nurse, maybe a pharmacist that's not involved in ID. Um, for you to have someone with the background, with the knowledge to critically evaluate the literature and present the data in an unbiased uh, format. And I think that last part is where all pharmacists can contribute to the current COVID pandemic is that we can critically evaluate the literature and then provide evidence-based medicine um, to help guide uh, going forward what works, what doesn't work, what's reasonable, what what are we actually causing harm to the patient? Uh, because when you drill down to it, that is the core of what we do, is that we practice evidence-based medicine and we are the drug experts. Awesome. Um... I don't, I don't really know what to say. I really look up to, to people <laughs> like you. Um, it sounds like you guys are really on top of um, trying to trying to care for people and trying to um, reach out to people and, and provide, um, you know, simple yet life-saving information. Um, and so thank you. That's, that's really all, all, all I can say is thank you for what you do. Um, you're definitely up there in... in in my eyes is you know someone who who deserves a big thanks for um for what you're trying to to do during this pandemic i know that i know that me me and geese are both interns at our uh, at the university of utah hospital um and yesterday in fact i was working and i i came out and uh, there was a lot of people um, standing outside of the entrance, um, and they all just started clapping and they were all looking at me. I, you know, I was, I just happened to be the only one walking out at the time and they're all clapping and looking at me and, and started saying thank you. And it was humbling to me because I 
don't do anything. <laughs> and and I say I you know I say that with a grain of salt. I I know that working in pharmacy is definitely is part of the frontline work and and we are doing our part to combat this virus but it was just humbling to me to be thanked by people um you know feeling that i do the little that i do so um from you know from gisu and myself uh just thank you for for everything that you're doing can't thank you enough um, and I will defer and say that I don't deserve that thanks either. You know, this is a collective effort. Everybody is doing this in every single institution across the U.S. I think I've been fortunate that I belong to some amazing organizations that have kind of laid the groundwork for um, what to do. You know, don't recreate the wheel. I've leaned heavily on I'm um, a member of the ACCP, American College of Clinical Pharmacists, the Infectious Disease Practice and Research Network. Um, we have an amazing email listserv there that connects thousands of ID pharmacists or pharmacists who have an interest in ID. We've been sharing protocols. We've been sharing a Google Doc that goes over what all the different publications related to COVID therapy have been. You know, I'm also a member of SIDP, so we've been doing these YouTube videos. Um, everyone is out there trying to help the best that they can. Um, so everybody has their part, even you guys, pharmacy interns. I mean, as pharmacists, we couldn't do our jobs without our technicians and our interns. So everyone's in this together, um, including the people that are staying home and not going out because right now we want physical distancing so that we can all help defeat this. Yep. Words to live by much agreed. Um, and we're very grateful for everyone who does their part in, in trying to try and end this thing, which we hope ends really quickly so that you know, we can all get back to our lives. That's, I, I think, what everyone wants. With, uh, and we can go down this rabbit hole for a long time, but I think we want to get back to normal life with, you know, a little asterisk, a little, a little remembrance of, you know, let's let's stay a little bit more healthy. Let's wash our hands a little bit more. So, well, um, ladies, thank you. I think, um, I think we could have talked for quite a lot longer with Monica. Yeah. Um, you've been a, you've been a great guest and I'm really, I'm really proud of what you do and I'm really grateful for your opportunity to come on this show. Well, Hey, thank you for reaching out on Twitter again, going back to that. Everyone join Twitter, start making those connections. I've enjoyed my time. I think you guys are fantastic. The future of pharmacy is bright. If you guys are the representation of what we have coming up in a couple of years. So we're all in good hands. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And Gisu, thanks so much for being on the show with me and, and, uh, and asking Monica all those great questions. Like I said, I look up to you also. Um, you're definitely going to be someone that I'm going to be I'm going to be following for, for a long time. Oh my gosh. You're too nice. Thank you. It was my pleasure and definitely an honor for to hear from Dr. Mahoney and just hearing a little bit about her expertise and what she does. And uh, it's been super fun. So to all my listeners on 23 pills and pharmacy future leaders, thank you for listening uh, to this awesome episode. Stay tuned for, for great episodes coming in the near future. The next episode, we'll talk to my good friend, major Dylan Bryant of the United States air force, um, who served as a pharmacist and currently practices, um, pharmacy. And, uh, he's, a, he's an awesome, he's an awesome guy learned a lot from him. So stay tuned for that episode. So yeah, thank you again. And we'll see y'all next time.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.